Hi guys, welcome to BSA Today. My name is Naomi um, and this is my co-host Jasmine. Say hi, Jasmine. Hello, everyone. And today we are joined with Mrs. Ross Smith, a former principal at Scona. Hi, Ross. Oh, hi, Mrs. Smith. <laughs> no, you can call me Roz. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. not about the name. It's about the respect you give, right? Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. I like 100% right. Hi, Roz. <laughs> Hi. How are you doing today? Good. Good. How are you? Good. Good. Thanks for giving me a, an opportunity to speak with the students at SCONA and the community at large about myself and how we can move our work forward by learning about other people's journeys. Of course. Thank you for coming on. Truly, it's an honor. Good. Alrighty. <laughs> Um, I'm going to start off by just like letting you introduce yourself and uh, talking a bit about your ties to SCONA and a background on you and your career. Okay. Um, well, I was a principal for SCONA after a principal who preceded me, Rick Anderson, had been there for 17 years. And I remember the day he announced his retirement and he said, oh my gosh, the staff said, who are we going to get yet next? And I was pretty excited to put my name forward to become the principal of Strathcona. And when I was selected, I was just thrilled, elated, because I respected Rick so much. And I just loved my time when I was a teacher and an assistant principal for one year working at Scona. So um, I followed him, and it was quite an ex uh, exciting path and journey at SCONA. But let me go back and just talk a little bit about myself. I, I'm born in Canada, raised in Montreal. My parents are, my father was a first generation Canadian. My mother was a new immigrant to Canada. Uh, I lived in an area that was predominantly French and white. Uh, my sisters and I were probably the only children in our little elementary school, Ogilvie School, probably about 300 students, and we were the only black children there. And what, what a circumstance we found ourselves in. Uh, we had teachers who had no understanding of what it was like for a black child to go to school. And you can imagine, you don't see yourself anywhere in the classroom. I had a teacher in particular in my grade four year who uh, refused to let me participate in the class. She was a teacher who um, spent a lot of time allowing other students to read aloud and I was a ferocious reader from a very young age but my turn never came and I remember my dad going to the school and talking to the teacher about it because my friends my white friends who I had at the time um, um, they they commented to my parents and to their parents how I never got to read in school and my father said to the teacher when she just said, oh, she ran out of time. She didn't have time for me to read. My father said, don't worry. When she grows out, she's going to read aloud to many, many people. And so, you know, that that was very, he, he really had a vision for what he saw me doing. Um, growing up in a school where you didn't see yourself, where you didn't see yourself in the community uh, was very challenging. 
each and every day I can remember going to school and we were called La Nigresse. And it was a very uh, daunting task to have to go to school every day and, and face those, those words in that language. And it just wouldn't stop no matter how much I compl we complained. My mother was a very strong person and she always said, you know, get over it. You know, don't worry, you're not going to have to deal with them all your life. Just go to school and learn what you can. And we certainly did. Growing up in my elementary and high school years, we never saw any other black people but our, our family. And so the only identity I had with black families were the people I saw on the Ed Sullivan Show. That was a program that came on Sunday evenings. Um, it was like uh, entertainment TV, I guess, now where they would have showcased different uh, musicians and artists. And we got to see uh, Diana Ross and the Supremes and the Michael Jackson family. And I guess those people became my role models because I didn't have any other role models. So I ended up looking towards music to understand what I could about the black race. And uh, I remember I styled my hair after Diana Ross. I had a big mop of hair as a child. And when I, when I see students at Skono who wear their hair so brilliantly and, and whatever style and fashion they have, I envy them because that's, I would have loved for that to be my experience at school. But instead, my mother spent Sunday nights straightening my hair with a hot iron comb and in the day, my mother was one of the best at doing hair. Uh, in fact, um, she grew up knowing Viola Desmond, who's on the $10 bill today. Uh, my mother was a, a colleague of hers when she first came to Canada, living in Nova Scotia. So it, it wasn't only just the hair, but just a repressed idea of not knowing your identity and your community and your heritage. My parents never talked about their families. My mother never told us about her life in Barbados as a young child because everything was to get us to assimilate into the culture in Montreal so we could be successful. I remember being in high school and meeting one time with the guidance counselor who looked at me, looked at my marks and pronounced, yeah, she said, you're going to make a good waitress someday. And I remember going home crying, very, very upset about that. And my mother said, there's lots of choices in the world. You know, you don't have to be a waitress if you don't want to. And I laugh at that because not that uh, I have anything against waitresses. I know how hard they work, but that was never a job anyone in my family ever did. And I have a feeling those comments were the reason. Uh, I finally got to university by the grace of a program called the Costa Hall, which was a, a program, community program, put together by some black elders in the community who wanted to see students go to university, black students go to university. So I got my foot in the door at McGill. It was great to go to McGill, very prestigious university, but boy, they weren't ready for me, and I certainly was not ready for them. My uh, academic background was not very strong, coming from a community, local community school 
in Montreal, which did not produce a lot of graduates that went on to university. So I struggled in the areas of math and science, just didn't have that background. The good thing was the fact that I loved to read and, and could teach myself through reading, I was able to get through the first two years of university. And once I began to understand the system, uh, I think I was able to progress from there. Uh, university had its pitfalls. I can remember times, particularly in my third and fourth year, where uh, I would submit papers to be marked and assigned, and no matter what I did, what I wrote, I would always get a C or a failing grade. One time I switched papers with a girl who was quite talented in the class just to see what happened. And sure enough, when she submitted my paper, she got an A, and when I uh, submitted her paper, um, I got a C. And then we knew that the marking was faulty. We went on to bring this to the dean's um, table at that time, and I was pronounced when he heard the story to be a cheater and a liar, and if I didn't withdraw my request, and if I didn't redo that paper, uh, I would be kicked out of university. Now you can imagine, coming from a very poor family, uh, a black family that had no experience in school and universities, how hard it would have been for me to withdraw from university. I remember my father, you know, delivering yellow pages. You, yellow pages you probably see now are just an inch thick, but they used to be big, big volumes, like a, you know, a thousand pages of information in each book. And my father delivered those on the weekends just to pay for my university. So there was no way I was going to uh, drop out. So I muddled through and finally got to the end of my four-year teaching degree. I might add I became a teacher because there were only two professions I knew, teaching and uh, social work. Uh, I knew about social workers because we had foster children in our family. Um, so I was always intrigued by the faculty of law, but I didn't have the confidence to be able to attempt to do the testing to become a lawyer to, or to be admitted to the faculty, even though by my fourth year, I had made friends with people who were in the faculty of law. Uh, I think in my last year of university was very demoralizing as well, because when it came to the student teaching prize, and I had done quite well in my student teaching, uh, the faculty decided that they didn't have enough money to give out the prize. And I was very, very hurt by that. But I got a job immediately. And I started my teaching career there at a little school called Royal Arthur. And the students in that school were predominantly immigrant, marginalized students. I was elated to be appointed to that school. My parents cried because my mother was convinced that the only reason I got that job was because I was black and they only wanted black teachers in that school and I wasn't uh, good enough to teach anywhere else. But I was so thrilled because I thought I was gonna change the world. So that's the beginning of my early, early school career. Uh, from there, I went on uh, to teach probably just two years in Montreal, and then I moved to Alberta. 
And boy, was that an eye-opener. I first started my work in a little town called Vagerville. Vagerville uh, at that time was probably the half the size it is now. And we still know Vagerville as a very small town outside of Edmonton. Uh, the people there were friendly, but they had no experience at all working with a black teacher. So everywhere I went in the city, people would know, oh, that's the teacher from, you know, from the elementary school in Vagerville. And if I went to the liquor store, the person in the liquor store would comment to my principal the next time he saw, oh, I saw your teacher in the liquor store. I once got a ticket for my uh, car because it was hanging over uh, a boundary line for parking. And they were so frustrated with me that when I didn't pay the ticket, they gave the ticket to my principal to insist that he get me to play the, the ticket. I never did that. So I was always a spectacle there, but they liked me because the, the students really enjoyed me because I could teach French and I was very accommodating to people, probably more educated at that time than the superintendent of schools in Vagerville. I laugh at that because he used to come to me and, uh, to ask me for ideas and suggestions, but it all went well. Uh, I, I felt that the discrimination that I faced in Vagerville was one of just people just being naive and not having an, an awareness of anything outside of their little town. They were farmers, uh, they knew farming inside out, but they had no experience with immigrant or people of uh, a different race. It's really hard for me as a young person to articulate my feelings because I, I never had anybody to really share my feelings with, so I kept them inside. My mother, as I said, was very, very focused on having us assimilate into the community, so she wasn't intrigued by the fact that I always listened to black music and, and that I wanted to style myself after the people I saw briefly on television. She just couldn't subscribe to that. She just wanted to be me to be what she called normal. And I, I say that not to chastise my mother in any way, because she, she was a hardworking woman, but just to show um, how um, cloistered we were, how we didn't have an opportunity to express ourselves. We never ate food from the Caribbean, uh, probably until I was 18 or 19 years old, because my mother always wanted us to understand what food was like in Canada. And boy, she could make the best hamburgers, because as my friends used to say, your mother put spice in them. My mother put spice in everything. So uh, it was always a, a big joke, but uh, my friends became fond of her for the things she did that were so unlike their parents, but my mother was still trying to make me like her friends. Does that give you a good um, understanding of the beginning of my career? Oh, definitely. I'll pass okay. it off to Jasmine. Um, she has the first question. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, well, number one, thank you so much for being here with us. Uh, to give a little bit more context to what we're going to be talking about today, we kind of want to focus on the lack of representation and the importance of representation growing up, especially as a child or a person of color. Um, right. So in context to that, Naomi and I are both young um, people of color, and we've seen firsthand 
how representation directly affects an individual's outlook growing up and their outlook on life. So you want to ask that as a woman of color, how has a lack of representation affected you growing up? Well, I, I think uh, the fact that you don't see yourself in others, you it's very difficult to aspire to things and to understand your race if you don't see your race represented. It, um, it causes, it's a cause for low self-esteem. It's also uh, a cause of people not feeling confident as they move forward. And you constantly, and, uh, and throughout my career, I constantly questioned myself, am I doing the right things? I don't think like the other principles. I don't sound like the other principles. Is that okay to be? And, and I think it's so important for us to have representation so students see themselves and they can really talk about, you know, the richness of their culture because when you have lack of representation in the school, you have no one who may have um, insight into your journeys and, and the, uh, as I say, the richness of your own culture, and that person is there to allow you to express your culture. Um, you don't need to second guess yourself when you have people around you who um, represent you and, and are there to be your champion. It's very difficult for students um, to go after a teacher about their comments or their ideas or things that they chose not to do without the teacher coming back and saying to the student, you're calling me a racist. And uh, the teacher may have racist practices, but when you've got an ally in the school or someone you can talk to to help you frame that crucial conversation, it makes things a lot easier. Um, I also think that you get ideas from other people who look like you when they tell you about their journey and how they've handled certain situations. Because not all situations are the same, but they have similarities to them that you can certainly um, bring yourself to avail upon to help you to make some good decisions. I, I feel in particular in schools, we lack representation of in, in the teaching profession. We certainly have it in the custodial area, and when I think of that, um, I think of custodians in the past where people would look down upon them because they felt they were only there to uh, clean schools, but they didn't see the value and the necessity that custodial staff played in helping to keep their schools clean and, you know, the value they had in terms of making the, the total environment conducive to learning. So when you have a new teacher or a black teacher on staff, who can help to bridge that gap and they're not always the go-to person but somebody that the child can identify with I think um, that's really important and as we look at our staff within our, our district particularly Edmonton public schools they certainly do not represent the students that they teach uh, our population within Edmonton public schools now is 25 percent of the students are English as a second language so when you merge that with students who are born in Canada, who come from marginalized and, and um, racialized communities, plus your new Canadian um, uh, program, well, students who come, and maybe all of them are not 
um, come from marginalized communities, but certainly the majority of them do. Uh, our, our teaching population does not reflect that. And it's interesting when you look at the, um, the billboards in your schools and the posters and the pictures, and you see, uh, as you go through the years, you see row after row of pictures with white students standing in uniforms, and you get into the 90s and you start to see how the race has evolved in the school and the and students have evolved in the school. Uh, and you look at the teacher uh, pictures, they haven't changed, but certainly the student population has changed. So how do we move our curriculum to broaden our curriculum, to include things that are of interest and need to uh, students who come from marginalized communities? How do we embrace their culture and use that to enhance the richness of learning? And how do we bring that, the opportunities that, that uh, many of the marginalized people who have come to Canada and work in Canada have brought to our society? I think of COVID and as just one example. And when you're looking at the scientists who have been able to work on the vaccine, the majority of scientists that we're seeing presented to us who've worked on this vaccine come from marginalized communities. Very academic, very strong people, but we don't see that. That's not acknowledged in schools. That they have been, they've done tremendous things for the world, but they're not getting that recognition, recognition as a, as a race. So I think uh, that's important. I think when you have a, a principal who comes from a marginalized community, you look at things for, with a different lens. You always want to consider, you know, how are your policies um, supporting or debilitating to your students? And I just think of looking at the expulsion rates. I'm beginning to look at that um, with our district and the majority of students over the past eight to nine years have come from major from marginalized communities who are um, expelled from school. And why is that? You know, what are they being expelled for? What are the reasons? And maybe uh, a principal who comes from a marginalized community can, can look at how we engage our stakeholders and engage our parents to understand the regulations and the policies that guide us. I think um, as a principal, one of the things I felt very strong about is to look at policies and, and certainly complain about them and, and make my position known uh, on how I felt with policies. And I think about that now the district is going forward with their anti-racism policy, which used to be the multicultural policy. Well, I, I want you to know that 10, 12 years ago, I condemned that policy and said it just was not right. It didn't serve the students of our population. And when you talk to Dr. Farah Sharif, she will remind people that when she was hired, the reason I hired her to work with me in Edmonton Public Schools was because she too saw the flaws in the policy and we were hoping that we could get a change. Well, it took 10, 12 years to change the policy and hopefully we're getting that done now. I really feel that we need to bring role models into schools um, to help our students see themselves and learn about others. And for marginalized students, the only role models that were ever brought into a school 
were the athletes. And it's not to say I don't like Darnell Nurse or George LaRock or any of the Edmonton Elks, as they are now, now called, but there are other uh, community members who could be a role model here. Do you realize that the head of chief of, of medicine, chief of a hospital here in Edmonton, is a black man? Nobody knew that. Did you realize that the head of the cancer clinic who put it on the um, put made the clinic cross cancer clinic famous was a black man. Nobody realized that, you know, so these people have not been championed by the community the way they should be. And they have not been used as role models for students. In particular, I think about um, the lack of representation during, you know, through the STEM courses. Uh, because we don't see the scientists, we don't see the mathematicians, but yet they exist. They're at the universities, they're working in um, huge manufacturing companies making huge decisions here. Did you realize that when there's a, a gas leak or a big fire here in Edmonton that the person they call out is a black man, very talented in math and science, nobody knows he exists. And he's probably so busy, he doesn't really tell people what he does. But, you know, there are people in our community that we can use in a better way to um, to help our students. As our, our district moves forward, we need to look at how we uh, shape our practices around hiring. I've heard from many, many black students when they finished university how difficult it is to get a job with Edmonton Public Schools. And I always look at the hiring practices and see it, to see what keeps them out of school. And I can say since I've retired, I've probably worked with about six or seven individual uh, teachers who have come to me just by word of mouth uh, about their, their troubles getting into Edmonton Public Schools. And one of the things I used to do was, or I've done up to this year, is I've helped them um, rewrite their resume uh, in a fashion that I think Edmonton Public School likes because the thinking process is very different for them. I've given them things to highlight in their interview and I've literally given them the answers to some of the questions I believe they will be asked. And it's not to say that these people aren't skilled, but the thinking process of Edmonton Public School is very, very narrow and that is something that I would really like to see change because not only do we turn off our young marginalized students in high school by not allowing them to see themselves and making it a meaningful experience, when they do leave school, for many of them, they tell me, I never want to go back in school again. I had a black lawyer who's in his mid forties who went to school when I was at uh, Emmy Lizard, who told me that he has never stepped one foot back in the high school he went to because it was so disheartening to him. And that makes me really, really sad because he's a young man who has lots to offer and he does help out the community in many other ways. He's involved in athletics, but to not want to go back to the school because of the way he was taught and the way he, he felt he was uh, underserved is very, very hurtful. So what we can do to help our young black teachers go forward is to certainly work with people like Dr. Farah Sharif and also to encourage the district to look at their processes a little different.
Thank you for sharing all of that. There's so much truth and power in what you stated. And I'd also like to note that um, you listed off all of those incredible mentors and um, incredible people in the community that us as Black youth or even BIPOC youth in general can look up to. But I think it's important to recognize and for everyone listening right now that um, you also fit in that box as the first and only um, Black female principal in Edmonton Public. So thank you for being the trailblazer that you are. Well, thank you. And, uh, you know, I always say there's going to be a first for everything. And it just so happens that I, I, I'm the first for Edmonton Public. But I want to say I don't want to be the last. And I, I really hope that we can begin to engage um, other young teachers into the leadership position. I think when people look at uh, leadership, they get so turned off by thinking about the practices and policies that they have to represent. When I went into leadership, I looked at it uh, in a way that I said, this system just doesn't work, doesn't work for everyone. How can I change it? And the only way I can change a policy or a practice is to be part of the conversation. And that's why I feel we need more black um, leaders coming forth in schools. And we have to begin to groom them. And I say, start grooming them right out of, not only university, but out of high school, identifying uh, young people who we think may make excellent teachers and investing in them. You know, giving them opportunities to be in a class, to shadow a teacher, to work side by side with a teacher, to come in and work with young people. And so when they finish their four years of university, they have a good grasp on what is going to happen in the classroom. I think one of the most challenging uh, pieces of, of teaching for black teachers is discipline. I work with a, a school now and the principal told me that he's got three or four, three black teachers on staff and he gets most of his complaints about the black teachers. And he said, there's nothing wrong with them as teachers. They're good, they meet the teaching quality standards, they're great colleagues to others, but it's parents' perception of what they want uh, a teacher to be. And they don't always see that in their, in their black teacher. So it means that we really have to do a good job, a better job of educating parents to understand the richness of having a diverse uh, practicing team of teachers in your school. Yes, yeah. definitely. Um, and I think that a really strong point you brought up was that you wanted to change the narrative and the first step you took was to get involved. And that really like that relates to any situation and how you said that parents need to be more educated because honestly, if you want to have a constructive discussion in which all parties, you know, their needs are met and you're considerate of other people's feelings, you need different opinions. So I think I think that was a really powerful thing to add to that. Yeah, it's interesting when I, you know, first became a principal and it happened to me at Skona, people would doubt that I was the principal. We had a running joke at Skona. It was called, are you really the principal? And it happened, uh, for example, with a, a child who was in the office for various reasons. And uh, he refused to believe I was the principal because he had never seen a black principal in his life. 
And certainly we teased him and cajoled them and he got to understand I was the principal. But that really told me that that child, and he admitted it, had never seen a black educator in his life before me. And how do you get to Skona, you know, and 11 years of education or 10 years of education and never see a black teacher? That's horrendous. You know, I've had people walk in the school who questioned me in another school parents male parents who walk in and they've got the newspaper in the hand the school newspaper and my pictures on the front and they think it's a printing error that my picture is there because you can't have a female black principal in this school uh, so it's always having to you know prove yourself but teachers were never lost that i was the principal i had a firm handle on them and for the most part lots of respect from teachers. Of course, when you made an unfavorable decision, you were called names, you know, behind my back, I was always called Aunt Jemima. And, uh, but I have to say the allyship in the, in the uh, principalship from my colleagues and certainly the assistant principals I worked with, uh, Ernie Lotz, Gary Paris and Chuck, Tom Davey, were phenomenal, phenomenal at supporting me and setting the record straight with um, other teachers and stakeholders who were doubting my leadership. Mm -hmm. um, I think you just brought up the importance of allyship and the allyship that you had within the staff, which I think is universally true for all people of color and all marginalized groups in general. Just having those people to confide in is so incredibly important. Um, growing up, did you have that same allyship? Did you have people that you could confide in I know that you said like your childhood and um, early on in your career really spoke to the lack of representation um, just shown within society at that time. Um, but you did you still have those people there for you? And did you have any mentors or um, role models that shaped your career path or even just you as a person? Uh, you know, I lacked the allyship in university. I just didn't have it. Uh, there were very few people in my faculty uh, of color. Many of them came as international students. They had their heads down. They were going to get their degree and go back to their first country and practice and teach there. So I didn't, I didn't have that allyship. And one of the things that I felt was lacking throughout my first 20, 21 years of my life was just not knowing professional black people. My parents um, were not in a position to engage with doctors and lawyers and professors and chemists. They, they didn't have those opportunities. And um, so I think that really hindered my progress. But as I got older and could begin to forge for myself friends and relationships, I, I began to uh, develop allyship. And uh, it was great, you know, when I came here to Alberta and met some other black teachers who, um, some, many of them from the Caribbean, but certainly that I could talk to and help, and they would help me to understand a process in school, or they would really help me to understand, you know, what it is to work with senior colleagues who are not comfortable working with uh, marginalized communities. So I think that was great. A woman who w was a mentor to me um, was 
Mrs. Shirley Stiles, and I know she continues to work with uh, your principal and the school at Skona. Shirley was a person who saw my leadership ability in the district and was quick to help me move into the uh, leadership capacity and into the principalship. I certainly value her and respect her work. And uh, she was a model, uh, she, she's a model leader. I think that really helped me. Um, when I went to, when I was at Skona as a teacher, I taught learning strats there. Uh, I had an opportunity to go to uh, Atlanta, Georgia for a conference. And at the same time, I went to the Dr. Martin Luther King Memorial uh, Museum. And that was really inspiring for me. Uh, and it really showed me firsthand the value of the fight, what's worth fighting for. And I came back and I had a poster of Martin Luther King's um, speech, sermon, I have a dream. And wherever I went as a principal, that poster sat behind me. So when I was having a bad day, I would turn around and I'd look at that poster and I would say, well, Martin, you, you tried to get through, you know, you know what I'm dealing with and I need to forge on. So, I mean, that's a mentor for, from afar. Uh, I, I think now um, I certainly had some principals who walked the journey with me and uh, were there when I had low days and days to support me in terms of dealing with discrimination and harassment. But now I look uh, forward to somebody like Dr. Sharif, who I'm, I'm just so thrilled with the work she does and what I can learn from her. I call it role reversal. She claims she learns from me, but I learn a lot from her. I love her language. I love her thought process. And I love the way she just champions anti-racism work. So I'm back in the game. Um, yeah, thank you so much for that. Um, we really appreciate like hearing about in terms of allyship and how that affected you. And especially, I think it's really brilliant that you were able to support someone like Dr. Sharif and now in the same way you guys get the opportunity um, to learn from each other. So kind of in correlation with that, is there anyone else that as a mentor really kind of helped you define your career path or someone that really pushed you to wanna fight for social justice and for racial equality in the school system? You know, another person I, I worked with within the school district is Dr. Christopher Wells. And uh, Dr. Christopher Wells is a white man who champions the LBGTQ work. Uh, we wrote the policy for the district together. And he, as a young man, really inspired me to uh, really look forward to um, how change can uh, affect a better environment for kids. And what I saw with Dr. Christopher Wells is that no matter how many hours he put in a day, it had to be enough hours and it could be 24 seven. If it was gonna make a difference for a child, he, uh, he was there to do that. And this year when I see that Edmonton Catholic Schools is actually recognizing gay straight alliances, uh, I have to tell you that is 14 years of work in the making. And so he inspires me. But another woman in the United States, she's just recently passed, is Dr. Lorraine Monroe. 
um, the Monroe Doctrines, we called it. Uh, she was a teacher in New York, and uh, she really talked a lot about, you know, the importance of setting up a good school structure. She came to Edmonton several times. We went to visit her in New York as well. And she really talked about the engagement of parents uh, and how that was going to affect change in schools. And she really modeled for not just me, but for a number of Edmonton public uh, principals, how to engage parents, having those community conversations, how to explain processes to parents, and how to get parents to champion their children. You know, oftentimes in the black community, punishment was seen as getting the wooden spoon out or, you know, I'm gonna take away your cell phone and you're gonna be in your room for 12, you know, 12 days and you, and you won't be able to come out, you won't be able to go anywhere. That doesn't teach a child anything. And Lorraine Monroe was one of the first people that I really got to understand, you know, what love and consequences are for a child and particularly for black parents and children and how to change that conversation away from being punitive to being more about restorative justice. And I see our district is beginning to adapt that model, but she really inspired me to, to look at the way how we consequence children and what I need to do as a leader and to stand up and fight for what you want. Don't be afraid to say anything uh, because no matter what you say, they're going to talk about you, as she said. So just say what you want, say what you mean, and stand by it. Don't back down. I think, yes, that is such a valuable message to get across. And I think that it applies to anyone in all situations where you have a cause or if you have something you truly believe in, it's always worth fighting for. And you're going to regret it regardless. Uh, we'll, yeah. if you, we'll regret it if you don't follow through with it. Um, right. And I want to end off on a bit of a positive note. Of course, there's been a ton that you've gone through growing up and you've accomplished a ton in the latter half of your career. Even throughout your life, just the barriers you broke, I cannot begin to express how much I commend you for that. Um, what are some of the positive changes you've seen being made over the course of your career? Well, I think the voice of students is the one I love. I mean, the fact that you're doing a, vo uh, a podcast, my gosh, that would have never happened, <laughs> you know, when I was a principal. You know, we wouldn't give children the tools and then the resources to be able to do things like that. Certainly, we started with a little bit of TV work over at uh, Emmy Lazert, but uh, championing student voices. And uh, I always remind people that, you know, when you talk about the George Floyd movement, the one thing that I really focus upon, it was the fact that a 17 year old was holding a camera and had the strength and capacity to take that video to, to prove that the police were wrong in how they handled George Floyd. Without that video and without that 17 year old there, we would have nothing. That 17-year-old changed the face of how we look at police brutality. And it, became, it was transparent, and it got the world to wake up and say something is wrong here. This is just not somebody's imagination. So, uh, you know, th those are things I'm really proud of. I am really pleased to see the numbers of uh, students applying to faculties like uh, medicine, 
and engineering, particularly black students applying to those faculties and being accepted um, is improving. For the first time in my life, I have a black doctor and I'm on this earth over 60 years. First black doctor I have, female, and I love her to death and she is so good and so kind. She gets me, she doesn't ignore what I'm saying. She just really works hard to understand who I am. And I think that is a, a big day of reckoning. And certainly, you know, I'm seeing more and more uh, people in the media, controlling the media. Uh, I think of Brandon Gomez, who's a young guy, journalist in Toronto, 26, 27, I don't know how old, but he's tackling big topics and getting you know, people of importance to be on his little TV program once a week and his community uh, group is growing all the time. His listeners are, they're just fast forwarding. I love the fact that we have black community newspapers. We used to have one in Montreal and Montreal now probably has about 30. In Edmonton, we've got two or three. I know that they will just explode in the next couple of years. That really makes me uh, feel good. And more and more, you know, I like the way that parents are engaging students. Uh, you know, parents are asking questions about schools, and I think that's really important. And, and you as students having a voice and a say in what you're taught, how you're taught, and how the school is organized, I think is very, very powerful because those incremental changes over time are going to make a difference. Definitely. Um, I think we're nearing um, the end of our time. Uh, first off, I'd just like to thank you once again so much for joining us. You had so many valuable and powerful words to share, and I cannot wait for the rest of the school community to hear this podcast. Jasmine, sure. do you have anything to end off on? Um, excuse me, pretty much reiterating the same thing. This was such a wonderful opportunity to hear you speak and share your experiences. And I know that as two young people of color, Naomi and I have, like, we have the opportunity to take so much from this conversation, especially when you talk about student involvement and how we have the opportunity to change our futures and we should take advantage of that. So I really want to thank you for like emphasizing and sharing that message because I think that it's something that you know, the listeners can really relate to and hopefully they take from and utilize in their own life as well. Well, that's great because you're you're the first, you know, you're a first, just like I'm a first in terms of my leadership, you're a first with these podcasts and, and hopefully next year um, you can explore more people. I'd love to see you, you know, have a podcast on some of those people I mentioned who may be shy to come forward or your people do not know, but I think the more that you can use this form to meet other talented people from marginalized communities and, and hear their lives and their perspectives, I, I think that would be very, very powerful. So good work, ladies. I'm really proud of you. Thank you. Thank you so, Thank you much. so much. Okay. And for everyone listening, um, we'll see you in a couple of weeks with a new episode. All right. Bye. Bye. But take care. Thank you. Bye -bye. Thank you.